Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is podcast number 13 of Hurricane Season 2019. Here along with my partner in these things, meteorologist Luke Doris. Hey, Brian. Uh, this is this is an interesting one because nothing escapes Brian. He's always got his eye out, and uh, this podcast is going to be evidence of that in this old hurricane that whatever it may or may not have been. So, uh, All right. Be yeah, it's an interesting story. And the famous Max Mayfield is on the line. Hi, Max. Hey, Brian. Hello, Luke. Hey, Max. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's get right to it. Uh, today we're going to talk about a bit of a hurricane mystery that I've been looking into, and Max has been helping me with it as well. The official hurricane record that we have says that a Category 3 or higher hurricane made landfall in Miami Beach on August 16, 1888, and produced a storm tide, kind of like a storm surge, of some 14 feet. We have reason to think... It did not happen. So it's interesting. We'll go over it all today, and maybe one of your listeners uh, has some data that could help us really pin this down. But uh, anyway, it's an interesting story, so hang on for that. Now, today we were going to talk with Dr. Louis Uccellini, who is the director of the National Weather Service. But this past weekend, Dr. Bill LaPenta, the director of the Office of Water and Air Quality at NOAA, suddenly passed away. He was previously the director of NSEP, which is the organization NOAA that's responsible for all the hurricane models that we're so familiar with. And I've seen him in many uh, conferences. He's a, a brilliant guy. We send our condolences out to all of our friends at NOAA and the National Weather Service. It's, uh, it's a tremendous loss. So uh, that's why uh, Louis could not be with us today. And we hope uh, we can have him on a podcast here in the future. In uh, just about four months, the National Weather Service is going to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the signing of the legislation that created the Weather Service under the U.S. Army Signal Service, and that eventually evolved into the National Weather Service that we have today. It was February 9, 1870, that President Ulysses S. Grant signed a joint resolution of Congress to put all that in, in motion, and we were going to talk to Louie about that, but I did want to uh, mention that that's in, in progress. Keep an eye on that anniversary because the National Weather Service is uh, planning to celebrate that in a variety of ways, and they have a lot of interesting information online. We're recording this on Wednesday, August 2nd, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10 here in South Florida or check the Max Tracker app for tropical information or the Local 10 weather app for any current weather information. And today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. All right, let's talk about the tropics here um, that's going on right now. I'll just quickly, because there's not a heck of a lot to talk about. We've got the disturbance down to the south, um, and we had some rain uh, going on today here in South Florida. Yeah, we did. Big, there's a lot of surge, you know, tropical moisture. This disturbance that's in the Western Caribbean doesn't look to be overly concerning. It's moving to the northwest into the Gulf. Uh, you know, this time of year, we start to get progressive patterns that come through. There's going to be a trough that swings at least nearby this. So it probably isn't going to, chances aren't zero. They're pretty low, though, that this is going to have time to develop into much. So we're not overly concerned about it. Anyway, it wouldn't be for us anyway. It's, it's, it's going to move into the Gulf before yep. it has any uh, opportunity, right? And then we have Lorenzo, which uh, it's heading toward 
Ireland and uh, to the British Isles as a weaker version and so-called extratropical version, kind of just a, evolves into a North Atlantic storm. Max, in, in all your time in hurricanes, uh, we've seen some storms head up there into the northeastern Atlantic, but not too many and certainly none as strong as far north and east as Lorenzo was. Yeah, now it has, you know, lost the tropical characteristics, so to them it's going to appear like a, uh, a pretty strong uh, wintertime-type storm. Uh, you know, they have those, you know, often in the wintertime, but, uh, uh, you know, this is going to be, uh, they'll know something's coming through, I guarantee that. Yeah, it was two years ago they had Ophelia, uh, which was a previous hurricane, but this started out stronger and uh, the idea that you would have a Category 5 hurricane that far north and east really is, I mean, that's exceptional in the record book. And it raises the question of whether an extra strong hurricane in that part of the ocean is what climate scientists uh, have been predicting, that we'll see stronger hurricanes in a warmer world and farther north. The, the challenge we have here, though, is that Hurricanes kind of run in cycles, 25 to 40 years. You get more of them, and then you get fewer of them. And during the up cycle, you get stronger ones. And during the last up cycle, before this current one, which started in 1995, we really didn't have uh, satellite uh, measurements, and we didn't have the kind of technology we have today. So we can't really compare apples and apples. But still it's uh, right it's and, yeah in the old days the uh you know before satellite i the only way we really had some feel for having a storm out there and especially for the intensity is if a ship uh you know encountered one and you know if it's a powerful enough uh, hurricane those ships wouldn't make it out right right they really wouldn't get anywhere near the center certainly to actually measure whether it was a category three or a category five if it was a, a strong storm so that's that's a little bit tricky in, in trying to say what is causing this, but the thing is that the idea of having this warmer water farther north certainly fits with the climate modeling, so it is uh, definitely something that we have to keep in mind. So let's, let's uh, talk about the hurricane that we're here to talk about today, and we're talking about the year 1888, and it's, uh, it's an interesting storm. It's uh, part of a of uh, a, a project that NOAA undertook. I, the storm isn't part of the project, but the analysis of, uh, analysis of the storm that we have in the record books today is part of a project. And Max, let's, uh, let's talk about the NOAA reanalysis project. We've had Chris Lancy from the National Hurricane Center on, who's really the champion of this going back uh, to the early 2000s, as I recall, and Jack Bevan, who's on the committee that reviews these things. Uh, after they're analyzed, uh, we talked about it some with, with him as well. But could you talk about the, the impetus for that project and, you know, how the records were before we had all the computer databases and, and uh, sort of computer technology we have today? Yeah, I remember very well when uh, that reanalysis project started. Uh, Dr. Lancey was still over the Hurricane, Noah's Hurricane Research Division over Virginia Key, and uh, we certainly supported him in uh, getting uh, support to, you know, start this thing up. And, and he's done a wonderful job. Uh, and But, you know, that hadn't been that many years ago. So they've still got a lot more of a storm to go back and look at. Uh, they do find, you know, some little tidbits of information here and there. And people come up with uh, some data that uh, we hadn't heard of before. And so, you know, we really need to do that. Plus, with the... Uh, 
uh, lack of recon uh, or satellite. You know, those days are just a lot of uncertainty, and, and uh, you know, some of those storms were classified too uh, high, uh, some too low, and they're doing the best they can uh, looking at, you know, everything uh, we have now. But uh, it, it, to me, it's amazing that uh, some of the records are, you know, the, the records go back to the time of uh, Columbus, for goodness sakes, in the Atlantic, and uh, just to have the tracks, uh, you know, figured out uh, with some degree of certainty, uh, going back that far is amazing. And I, you know, before you had computers and uh, before you had the internet and before you could do searches, and you know, this is mostly done by hand. And uh, the, the, even the track charts in the old days were, you know, done totally by hand. And so uh, they they paid a graphics artist to draw the the, the tracks there. So. Anyway, we've come a long way, but uh, there is certainly some uncertainty in those old, old hurricanes. So this has always fascinated me. How do we know what we do know about these old hurricanes? How do we have you know any information, especially in sparsely populated areas like South Florida was at the time? So what was it that, you know, where are we getting our information from? Was this lighthouses? Lighthouse keepers? Well, so, well that was not included, actually, but... Every year, and uh, I should know when they first started the monthly weather review, but it was in the 1870s, I think, maybe 1873, six in my mind, but I'm not sure. Anyway, they wrote uh, every who, – who, who was responsible for that, uh, Max? Was that the, the signal service back in the – back yeah, originally? I think – yeah, I believe originally it was the signal service, but then the, uh, the weather service uh, back then was called the Weather Bureau – and they started. Uh, they took that over and started doing the reports, uh, you know, yearly, uh, and have continued that, uh, you know, through today. So, you know, if you don't make some uh, report on every single tropical cyclone, uh, you know, you just you're not going to have that history. So, uh, the history is pretty good once those started. But before that, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, but when we're talking about the 1888 time frame, there is the monthly weather review. And actually, Weather Underground, wonderground.com, has mm-hmm. taken on hosting all of those old copies. And you can go on there and actually look at the old copy, and, and you'll see what information was available. And that's a starting point, anyway, in the and, case Yeah, of, they did have some, you know, land reports, obviously, but they also had the ship reports. But the ship reports would come in... You know, late. It's not like they had uh, you know real-time reports from the ships, but uh, uh, you know they would piece that together. And there've been a lot of people. And Brian, I know you knew Dr. Jose Fernandez Partikas, and he and Ed Rappaport uh, did some really good work uh, going back, uh, you know, even back to the uh, you know 1400s. So just so we have a picture of how this could have been pieced together, you're going to take reports around whatever storm there may be, and you'd probably have a barometer and wind direction, correct? Wind direction, wind speed, maybe. Sometimes. And, then <laughs> and But usually it's on, in this case, it's on the periphery. Uh, we have a wind. We okay. don't have any barometer anywhere near South Florida, what we think of as being South Florida today. Uh, mostly the storm we're going to talk about happened in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was a very big storm for New Orleans. It went right over New Orleans, and it caused a lot of problems. But that was downstream. The question is, uh, what happened when it came over or near South Florida? And as I said, the the official record at this point, based on the information that they had and they pieced together, they came out with the idea of this Category 3 or higher storm coming right over Miami Beach and producing a storm tide of 14 feet. But... 
So here's the thing, is that this is what got me going on this, was uh, we talked with Dr. Jack Bevan when he was on the podcast about it, and uh, as you know, uh, Luke and Max, I, I look at old hurricane stories all the time. It's kind of my life. And, and so what we knew, uh, or what we think we know, is that it crossed over the Bahamas. Now the official track has it going just to the south of Nassau and then over the tip of Andros Island. Uh, there are some reports uh, that are available in the New York Times about it affecting Abaco. So, you know, I, th I think that part of the track is uh, in question. And then at 2 p.m. on August the 16th, 1888, the official track says it came over kind of the north part of the city of Miami Beach that we know today. And I got to, to thinking about that because Max... Talk about what it would take, what kind of hurricane it would take to produce a storm surge of, uh, say, 10 or 14 feet on the ocean side of Miami Beach. It would have to be a very powerful hurricane, probably a Category 4 hurricane, actually very similar to the uh, great uh, Miami hurricane of 1926 to produce a storm surge like that. Yeah, so it can't be some kind of trivial storm, right? And I got to thinking... Okay, first, uh, my first thought was, well, the city of Miami wasn't even founded until eight years later. So maybe it was just that all this happened and nobody reported it. But, you know, I've read a lot of history books about uh, Miami, and I never heard of it. I never, you know, never heard uh, anybody remember it and the old, uh, the pioneers or anything. So I thought, you know, let's just see what reports are uh, available. So we're still searching. And we still haven't gotten to the definitive bottom line on exactly what happened, but here's uh, where we are. It turns out that starting in the 1870s, 1876, actually, the U.S. government built these things called houses of refuge along the east coast of Florida, and they built 11 of them. The southernmost one was uh, where today's 72nd Street and the beaches in the city of Miami Beach. And these houses of refuge, or also called life-saving stations, uh, were for uh, shipwrecks mostly, people that would uh, run their ship or in a storm somehow hit the reef out there. These would be life-saving stations and people to, to uh, monitor the coastline and to help people as necessary. So they are manned. So they're manned, and generally it's a family that's living there. And it turns out that logs were taken at these life-saving stations up and down the coast. Now, the, so, uh, of course, I go out, and once I heard about this, and, um, you know, Google is a, an amazing thing, and try and dig up one of these logs. Well, the logs are apparently in some archive in Washington uh, to the extent they exist, but there's a Miami historian named Thelma Peters who was very, very famous for many, many years uh, she passed away in the 70s, uh, I think it was. But she wrote, uh, she, I mean, she's just very famous in Miami historical circles. Anybody that knows Miami history knows Thelma Peters because she wrote so many articles. Well, she wrote a story about what was called the Biscayne House of Refuge, the one that was on Miami Beach. And she went to Washington, and she looked at the log, and she excerpted the log, and we have, and you can find it on Google, we have the uh, list of all of the events in that log that she took to be interesting or important. And the list goes on for pages. 
And the, uh, the documenting starts in uh, 1883, I think it is. But in any case, it covers this 1888 time span. Well, when you look in that list and you get to 1888, August of 1888, there's no mention of a hurricane. And I thought, okay, you know, what does that mean? Uh, maybe they just didn't do weather. Well, if you go down farther in the list, it talks about when there was a big storm in November that the water came up under the house. So, And then you go back previously, and indeed they talk about storms that were offshore and so forth. So that was the first big clue that, that this big hurricane that was supposed to have hit right there really didn't happen. But there are other clues, and another one is immediately after the date we're talking about. We're talking about August 16th. On August 18th, it mentions that uh, two guys came from the lake, which almost certainly means Lake Worth because there are a lot of stories about travelers going up and down the coast, and they would stop in Lake Worth and then go to Fort Lauderdale and then come to Miami. And they arrived on the 18th, as did a guy from Key West. So if some massive major hurricane came along on the 16th, you wouldn't have people in small boats going up and down the coast on the 18th and arriving on the 18th, you wouldn't think, because they would have had to have left on the 17th or maybe even on the 16th to get from Key West or maybe before that. So so that's the first clue. The other is that that house stood there from 1876 through the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, until the 1926 hurricane destroyed it. So, as Max was saying, the 1926 hurricane produced a storm surge on the order of 10 feet. Uh, so we get into this 10 or 14 feet, whatever, just think of it as on that order of 10 feet on Miami Beach, and that destroyed the house. But yet, in 1888, two days after this supposed hurricane, they were entertaining guests. So it, it's uh, incongruous, uh, to say the least. So, yeah. so. Hey Brian, let me uh, say one thing if I can here. Okay. The uh, that uh, we're not questioning the fact that there was uh, not a hurricane in 1888. In fact, when I got to the Hurricane Center in 1972, uh, the Bible on hurricanes at that time was really a book published by Ivan Ray Tannehill, published in the 1930s, and it does have the track that and we've talked about this. The, the track is in there. Uh, from the northwest Bahamas across uh, uh, South Florida, then into the Gulf, and in his uh, chronological listing of hurricanes, uh, it, it has that 1888 hurricane, and it says uh, Florida, Middle Gulf Coast, wind estimated at 90 miles per hour at New Orleans. So it, you know, we think there was a hurricane, you know, in Louisiana. I think the question is, you know, what we had over South Florida. There was a really a powerful hurricane. Right, right. That's, that's the thing. And if you look at his track, it's really interesting. If you look at his track, it's actually over Palm Beach County. It's not right. over the southern part of the peninsula. So when you put all these pieces together, and I'll give you some of the other pieces that we know, uh, the idea of some kind of storm going over Palm Beach County actually makes some kind of sense. You know, because the, the wind readings we have, there are only two, and they come from that monthly weather view we were talking about. And it shows a 60-mile-an-hour wind from the east in Jupiter. Jupiter is the very northern end of Palm Beach County. And 75 miles per hour from the northeast in Sebastian. Sebastian is farther north, up just north of Vero Beach. So... Uh, just if we don't pay attention to the exact wind speeds, because we don't know how well they were measured 
and so forth, especially the one in Sebastian. In, in Jupiter, there was the lighthouse there, and there were kind of skilled people that had been there for some time taking weather uh, observations, so we have a little more confidence in that. Uh, but if you think about an east wind in Jupiter, that would put the storm to the south of Jupiter, the center of the south, right? 60-mile-an-hour wind could either mean a big hurricane way south or a weaker storm closer, right? That would yep. make sense. Yep. And there's one other data point I just found today, by the way. I don't think I've had a chance to share this with you, Max. Um, there was in Riviera Beach, you know, Riviera Beach is just to the north of West Palm Beach, a guy built a hotel there. And uh, originally it was a house. He started in the early 1880s, and it became a hotel. And he just moved into it in 1888, and it was slightly damaged by a hurricane that month in August of 1888, according to the Titusville newspaper. So that's another indication of something of a hurricane coming by or a storm coming by of some kind, but it only did slightly damage to this house that was sitting kind of exposed to the water and up on a bluff there in Riviera Beach. So that's another uh, interesting piece. So, Brian, I have a quick question for you. If, if the storm, you said one of the possibilities was is that it's a very large storm if it were to be further south. Uh, how... I'm thinking like the Keys, especially Key West, probably was more populated than South Florida. Just a guess. I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, yeah. It's drastically more. So they would have felt it if it were that large of a storm. There would be a record from it from the from the lower Keys, correct? Well, we have actually wind records on the weather maps from the lower Keys. So, so I have gone back to try and research exactly what the winds in the Keys were across you know, the full record. But at 8 a.m., and at 8 p.m. every day, the uh, signal uh, core people, the signal service, put out these weather maps, which are available online, and they actually show a little uh, weather plot, wind plot, actually, at various locations. And at Key West, we can see those wind plots, and the winds are light both at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. You know, the direction indicates a distant storm uh, moving across southern Florida somewhere, but the the winds are eight miles an hour, some kind of very small number like that. Gotcha. So we do have those those kind of uh, plots. Now, farther along, uh, as part of the reanalysis, uh, Brian Jones from the University of Miami uh, found some observations at a place called Fort Meade in Florida, which is kind of in central Florida, east of Tampa, and. And it doesn't show the wind speeds there, but it shows the wind direction there, which gives us some timing on when this storm would have gone by. It shows a southeast wind, then a northeast wind, and and uh, uh, or a northeast wind, then a southeast wind, I guess. And uh, and so we we get a pretty good idea that later in the day the storm went by there. So in the reanalysis they use that for timing, and we have from Tampa. In the Tampa newspaper of the next day, they actually talk about the the fact that there was some damage in uh, in Tampa. A house was blown down, but it's it's almost an offhand reference in the newspaper because most of the newspaper is about the yellow fever epidemic, which was which had quarantined Tampa and Jacksonville, and it was a huge problem. 
but they make this little reference kind of in a list of headlines to this storm that came through and how bad it was last night, in other words, the night of the 16th into the morning of the 17th, and uh, and then it was passed. So so we have you know these, these uh, sort of tidbits that tell us that the hurricane moved across the state, uh, but the indications that we have are that it wasn't terribly strong. Seems like uh, seems like the bottom line, and then we get to the Pensacola and New Orleans newspapers. Pensacola talks about it and how it was um, an issue, but not a tremendous issue. But then in New Orleans, it was a huge uh, issue, flooded the city, and and uh, was a big deal uh, in New Orleans. So we actually have some confidence that uh, something big uh, happened in New Orleans. So. So, Max, I guess, you know, what we're left with here is trying to figure out where these reports uh, come from. Because we have Tannehill in 1938, as you say, that's really important because that was the the book back in the day. And and you would think that future uh, reports and future books would sort of spring from that, but Later, uh, for instance, Gordon Dunn, in fact, you, you can talk about Gordon Dunn, what an important guy he was in hurricanes here in Miami. His 1960 book with uh, Banner Miller, they had the storm track farther south, and, uh, and they talk about it actually you know, coming into the Miami area, even though the damage was minimal, according to that book. Now, how, how do you, you have any thought about how you know these two— eminent people, uh, Ivan Tannehill and Gordon Dunn, would, over that period of time, come up with something different? Well, I knew uh, Gordon Dunn, and all I know is uh, he was really a detailed uh, person. Uh, He was amazing. Even after he retired as the director of the Hurricane Center, he would would walk back. He lived in Coral Gables, and we were located on the University of Miami campus back then. And he would actually walk over every single day. He'd come in the Hurricane Center. He'd go buy him a Coke out of the machine. And then he'd walk around and uh, look at the maps and look at the forecast maps. And he wouldn't, didn't ever say anything. I mean, if you said hi to him, he'd, you know, return that. But uh, he didn't really talk much. He just liked to look at uh, the weather maps. So he was, he was really into this. And he really worked hard on uh, trying to document some of these things published, and, and he did that uh, while he was at the Hurricane Center, and that's one of the references that uh, a lot of people use for some of these hurricanes. Yeah, so it's interesting. And so I don't he, think he would have changed anything. I don't think he would have changed the track unless he had a very good reason for that. So, Max, I, I guess where we are is trying to figure out why and how things changed over time, right? If we could, if we could come up with the supporting material, that would make us feel a lot better about this, because we have these this, this change in the track between Tannehill and Dunn. And then suddenly in the 1990s, the first reference I can find to that storm surge is in a 1994 book uh, about Florida hurricanes. And before that, there's no mention of that 14-foot storm surge in any of the material that we've found so far. In your experience, do sometimes storms get mixed up? Or how how do you think? You know, suddenly I a piece think, of information uh, could happen. You know, anybody can make a mistake, especially back uh, before we really had computers. I mean, you know, a lot of these reports, uh, I mean, when I got to the Hurricanes, these reports were typed up on, on a typewriter, for goodness sakes. And, 
uh, you know, you'd hand write out the report, and uh, then you'd type it up. And uh, so I'm sure there are some uh, mistakes uh, made in there now. Now, that 1994 book, which book is that? Who are the authors of that? Yeah, so that's the uh, Florida Hurricanes and Tropical Storms book that we were talking about that uh, okay. that you did some work with them or research with them or experience well that actually uh, they sent the book to uh, Bob Sheets who was the director of the Hurricane Center at the time and asked for the Hurricane Center to review the book uh, well I was a hurricane forecast at the time and uh, they let me have the honor of reviewing the book <laughs> and it was uh, it was painful I really uh, at the bottom line uh, after days and nights uh, reviewing this uh, I, I I actually typed up a response it was about I, don't know, I think about twelve pages long, and I said, uh, in addition to giving some specifics, I finally threw my hands up and said, this, "There's just too many inconsistencies here." And I said, "In my uh, opinion, this book should not be published uh, unless you can uh, give the source of your information." When they changed categories of hurricanes or uh, uh, added hurricanes, they needed to provide some. Uh, reason of that, you know, the the American Meteorological Society nowadays, you can't get anything published unless you go through reviewers. Usually, they send your publication out to three different uh, people to have it reviewed, and and that, that was what we were actually doing on this report. And I uh, of the Florida hurricanes, and uh, I just uh, I I couldn't uh, the, all the inconsistencies drove me crazy. And uh, that, I mean, I'm not talking about this specific hurricane. There are many, many, many other uh, inconsistencies there that. I, well, that were incorrect. So, uh, you know, we recommended that they not publish it, and uh, I don't know if the <laughs> other reviewers, perhaps they did not uh, uh, have access to the uh, published uh, data that I had, but, uh, uh, but somehow they got it published. Well, so, which obviously raises a question about that 14-foot number, although but there may be some kind of supporting information for the 14-foot number for some hurricane, although I think we're confident it wasn't the 1880 hurricane in Miami Beach. Well, here's where this leads, is that the reanalysis project uh, looked at the available data, and one of the key pieces of data that they looked at is a book by uh, Jay Barnes. Now, Jay Barnes is, is a very well-known researcher, right. and he's uh, written books about uh, historical hurricanes. He wrote a book in, in 1988 uh, that mentioned the 14-foot storm surge on Miami Beach, and that became an important part of his narrative. And then the uh, hurricane reanalysis team picked that up as an important data point. Well, I wrote to Jay Barnes, and I asked him, and he told me he got that 14-foot number from that Florida Hurricanes 1994 <laughs> book. So going backward, that's where we are. Now, in that book, it does provide a reference of where the information uh, and theory came from. And it talks about a 1987 NOAA publication, which is a very, very well-known, we used to call it the hurricane track book back in the day. Uh, everybody that did hurricanes had them around, and they came out every year. Well, that 1987 one, I have not been able to find, but I found the updated version, and there's no mention of any storm surge in the updated version. So, well, actually, even those, uh, we, yeah, you're right. We just call them uh, the track books, uh, uh, even today. Uh, and they actually, in the in the introduction, they they talk about, uh, you know, the uncertainty in the in the you know, long time ago uh, periods, and uh, they 
that's just in fact I've looked at I looked I actually found one that goes uh, through uh, from 1871 to 1998 and there's no mention of storm surge that I can find anywhere no listing of specific storm surges in any of those books uh, that I'm aware of right. uh, but I did find in fact uh, Brian this is uh, I just found this uh, not too long before we started uh, the recording here this one that was published uh, after 1998 uh, it shows the uh, the tracks of the hurricanes, and you can see the track of the 19. Uh, I mean, sorry, the 1888 hurricane. And it, it unless my eyes are bad, it actually looks to me like it is uh, shown as a uh, uh, you know going over South Florida, you know, somewhere between Miami and Palm Beach. But they uh, they did not. They also have a ranking, a chronological listing of each hurricane in the category. And they didn't even start the ranking until 1899. They said they just didn't have enough uh, confidence in the data to do that. So there, there, there's no record on the intensity, uh, you know, at least up until the late 1990s, so uh, from the Hurricane Center. Right. But then somehow that did get changed, and, uh, you know, by the time we got the track book, uh, and the one I've got goes through 2006, and... The actual graph shows it as a major hurricane, although I note in the table that we were talking about here, uh, it's not listed as a major hurricane. It looks like, uh, well, it's a, it, I don't know. You can't you can't really tell. It, uh, uh, it, it is listed in there. So in actually, the, the map shows it as a as a major hurricane. Now, did they get that from the book that was published uh, a few years before? I don't know. They. Uh, you know, I'm looking at Jay Barnes's book here, and that's just you know he is a really good researcher. But he, uh, uh, I think that source that he used for that particular one might not have been uh, very good. Yeah, well, he he told me that he said in future editions he's not going to use uh, that uh, that 14 foot number. And interestingly, the other uh, data point that Jay Barnes used was that same track book. You know, that's where he got the information. So I think what happened, Max, is in that later track book that you have, uh, that was after reanalysis started. Uh, so perhaps that has has all this uh, information we've been talking about. Okay, and that, by the way, if it went through 1998, uh, this would not have been published until, uh, you know, a year or two later. Right. So, uh, yeah, but uh, it, I wonder that you may have found the source there, Brian. <laughs> yeah, so... So anyway, we'll see. We're going to keep uh, digging on this. So, you know, it raises the question, where did the the 14-foot the number come from? So, I don't envy the people that, you know, have to go back <laughs> and are, are <laughs> maybe it seems like people like you, they really enjoy this kind of thing. It seems very tedious. So there's no, like, pointing of fingers or it's just, you know, this is a very delicate, um, you know, undertaking to do. Uh, but it just seems like an error. It just seems like a simple error where there was a date or a, a, a data point that was mixed up somewhere along the way, whether it was 26 or what have you. But right, that's what it seems like. So where would it have come from? Well, the the best candidate is 1926 because the storm surge kind of matches 1926 right. plus or minus. It seems reasonable. But also uh, in 1888, in October of 1888, there was a hurricane that hit Cedar Key where the storm surge was reported to have come up 9 to 10 feet in 30 minutes in October. So did that somehow, was there a reading of 14 feet there? I haven't been able to find it, and somehow that got put on the wrong 1888 hurricane? Maybe. 
or maybe uh, when this storm went to Louisiana. It certainly produced a lot of storm surge. But I've looked through the newspapers from the time in Louisiana, and uh, the New Orleans papers were quite robust in their coverage, and there was nothing that indicated a giant storm surge coming over like Grand Isle, uh, Louisiana, down on the Gulf Coast, which is where the storm surge would have been the highest, you would think, looking at the track. So um, we don't know. Uh, we don't know exactly. We're going to keep keep uh, looking around. But in any case, uh, we, we feel good that, that – that we can take one of the Category 3 and above hurricanes off the record book for extreme South Florida and for the Miami-Fort uh, Lauderdale area. So that's it. The The bottom line is if anybody that's listening knows anything about this and has any information about what might have happened in 88, write to us uh, at weatherpod, like all one word, weatherpod at wplg.com, weatherpod at wplg.com. And let me know. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are if you if you know anything. So uh, here we are in October, and you know it kind of feels like the hurricane season should be wrapping up, but we kind of know better. Not for South Florida, <laughs> and, and not for really anybody. But you know we're still. And in fact, you were talking about this on television yesterday, Brian. Uh, that uh, if you tally up the total number of hurricanes that have made landfall in South Florida in October. You get 23 of them, mm -hmm. and if you go to September, 18, so fewer, even though, you know, September maybe stands out a lot more in people's minds, but uh, the September uh, records have twice as many Cat 3 and above hurricanes. That's 13 versus 6 in October, so the September storms are much stronger, uh, but we have total more numbers in October, so they're... Uh, uh, Hurricane Wilma is one that, you know, you yeah. pointed out yesterday, 2005. That one did not feel weak, uh, so they can still certainly pack a punch, but uh, at least that's what the records say. We're still yeah, and that was a Cat 3 in the Everglades. That was only a Cat 1 in Miami-Dade County, Cat 2 in uh, Broward and Palm Beach County. Max, uh, I went back and forth with Phil Klotzbach yesterday, who is the, the famous hurricane forecaster that, that took up uh, Bill Gray's uh, task at Florida State, uh, at uh, Colorado State, uh, to make the seasonal forecast, uh, because he is the guru of hurricane stats. So when you add up these six category three and above for the Southern Peninsula, now that's from a line Bradenton to Fort Pierce and South, so it's not just immediate uh, South Florida here. Um, that does not count. Two storms of interest. One is the 1910 hurricane, which uh, turns out it went between the dry Tortugas and the Marquesas Keys in the Keys in the track book. So it threaded between these keys uh, in the extreme lower Florida Keys and did not count as a landfall in the reanalysis which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of error in that track and a little bit this way or that way it would run over an island and count it as a landfall. So I always counted that one as a landfall. But the other one, Max, and, and maybe uh, you know something about this, was Isabel in 1964. Uh, that came up uh, over the West Coast and kind of to the northwest of us here in South Florida and, and uh, went out in the Treasure Coast area. Do you know anything about Hurricane Isabel? You know, it, because we have conflicting information in the in the hurricane tracks, it shows it as a Category Three. If you go online right. into the Coastal Management, but if you look in the list uh, from the Hurricane Research Division, it shows a Category Two, 
And uh, obviously, it's been reanalyzed, but that final reanalysis uh, data isn't uh, finally approved yet. So we're just we're, we're waiting on that. So I just thought I would check with you on that uh, since it is well, October. Now, all I know is uh, the history that I inherited. I mean, it uh, it was listed as a major hurricane. I mean, uh, right off the northwest tip of uh, Cuba, and then over the southwest Florida coast, and then out the uh, the you know Florida east coast, north of Palm Beach. Uh, uh, we know it's a hurricane. I'm sure even back in 1964, there's some uncertainty on how strong it was. Yeah. Well, anyway, so if that is indeed a Category 3 hurricane in the reanalysis, and you count 1910, then you have eight. Mm. So anyway, the the numbers uh, are always subject to review is, uh, is the bottom line. All right. Uh, that's our podcast uh, for this week. Uh, next Monday, we'll have another podcast for you. And we're, we're going to have on, finally, Matt Underlindy, who's one of the behind-the-scenes whiz kids at the National Hurricane Center. You'll enjoy hearing from him. He's also the creator of weathernerds.org. It's a great uh, weather website that uh, we use all the time. So that'll be next Monday. And this podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. That's our show for this week. For Luke Doris and Max Mayfield, I'm Brian Norcross at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week, everybody.